This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, Annabelle Hirsch, the writer and author whose recent book is A History of Women in 101 Objects. The book covers items found across millennia, ranging from cave paintings from 20,000 BC to a ring owned by Kim Kardashian. Hirsch is joined in conversation today by the journalist, crime podcaster and screenwriter Poppy Damon, co-creator of Murderabilia, a podcast about the collection of true crime objects on Audible. If you want to listen to this ad-free and enjoy more member perks, then do become a member on intelligencesquared.com membership or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Now let's join Annabelle Hirsch and Poppy Damon in conversation. Today we're talking history, both ancient and modern, and more specifically how the objects we create, covet, and eventually part with tell our story. Annabelle Hirsch's recent book is A History of Women in 101 Objects. Hirsch doesn't strictly define herself as a historian. She's a journalist for titles such as the Frankfurter Allemeine Zeitung and studied art history, theatre, and philosophy before building her career in writing. She recently described this book to a UK newspaper as a walk through time so that you can get a sense, I hope, that women's progress was not linear from total submission to emancipation. It goes in waves. It's already been a hit in Germany and has been translated into English by Eleanor Updegraff. An audiobook is also on the way, featuring readings from the likes of Helena Bonham Carter, Angelica Houston and Olivia Coleman, among others, whose picks explore the subversive undercurrents of objects such as a hat pin, Tupperware and in Coleman's case, the humble B-Day. Annabelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I wanted to begin by asking how you came to this subject matter, because it's a rather kind of fun story that you share at the beginning of the book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I had, let's say, many, many ways that uh, brought me to this project. But at the beginning, I I tell the story of a visit I made to the house of Karin Blixen in um, Denmark. And um, I was a bit surprised by myself because I was in this house that is very cute and beautiful. And I saw her desk and all her books and all that stuff that you would uh, think of as very important. And um, what really kind of um, uh, got my attention were the many um, pots or the many yeah, cooking devices in her kitchen. She had like, I don't know, 50 50 pots hanging there. Um, and I was really wondering because she was so tiny and she was so small and seemed kind of not someone who would enjoy cooking, I thought. And um, so this, in a way, really like um, immediately opened up many questions for me that um, I was, yeah, I was thinking, did she cook? Did someone cook for her? Um, in a way, what would she eat? What What did this say, you know, about her, about a woman of her class, of um, the job she did. 
um, of, of this country she lived in. Um, and so it kind of brought me to, yeah, to think that objects are very, um, a sensible and maybe even sensual way to approach, um, well, people in this case, women particularly, um, from the past and, you know, to, yeah, to feel close to them, like to, to friends in a way. And you also kind of recounted conversation at a dinner party that I thought was really revealing where someone sort of joked about the premise, but it was sort of quite telling what that really meant. Yes, it was a very fun and also insane to me moment. Um, so I was in, I was living in Paris back then and I was at, um, at a dinner with many very important people or people who thought of themselves as very important, especially men, uh, that were obviously much older than myself. And, um, so I, I, I said, or they were asking me, what are you working on currently? And I said, I just started um, to think about this idea to tell the history of women or a history of women um, through objects. And so one of these guys um, started to laugh and said, well, but women and objects, but women are objects. And he thought it's very funny. And so, and I, I was very, in a way, very disgusted. But then I also thought that this, um, yeah, tells a lot because I think we used to tell history until very recently in a way, um, as this was true, as women have always been objects that were standing silently in a corner and didn't, um, yeah, participate in any way to the big history. Turning to some of the objects then in the book, um, I wanted to start with where you start, uh, a healed femur, which might be a surprising kind of beginning. I just wonder if you could share that story and and why you chose it to start the book. Yeah, it's kind of probably not the most appealing first object. It's not very pretty because <laughs> it's basically bone. Um, but then I think it's good to be surprising sometimes. And also the story that I want to tell through this um, made m much sense to me as a starting point, because um, there's a story that is much told about Margaret Mead, um, the um, famous anthropologist, one of the first female anthropologists, actually. Um, she was in the 60s in a um, university in the US and she got asked by one of the students um, what she would say is um, kind of one object that would symbolize the beginning of our civilization. And so we suppose that this person was aiming for a weapon or something like that. And she said it's a healed femur. And she explained that in nature, obviously an animal would never survive uh, with a broken leg. And that um, the fact that we found this healed femur so that this person obviously survived um, uh, would tell us that someone um, cared for this person. And so she says what makes us so strong as a species, what makes us in a way maybe uh, as some would think superior um, is not that we are fighting, is not that we are making wars and not even conquesting or not even inventing probably, but that we care for each other. And so she, yeah, she says that this is um, what our civilization actually is about, um, is uh, the care and to to be there for each other. Um, and I really like this idea because I think that in a way, what I try to say through the objects that are, uh, well, overseen in a way, right, um, as women have been, um, is that we tend to tell our history in a very, well, violent way also. You know, we tell it through the wars, through the conquest, to 
um, well, this this male point of view in a way. Um, and uh, so I really like the idea that actually there's something that we overlooked and that we often think of as very unimportant, but that probably is at least as much important or even more important. No, it's such a beautiful place to start and it kind of speaks to where you take the book in many surprising places. And one of those surprising places is perhaps getting to some sexual objects and there's a particular kind of, I, I hope we can say dildo on this podcast, I'm going to assume we can, um, but tell me a little bit about that and, and finding that object to include in the collection. Do you mean the glass one? Yes, I mean the glass one. <laughs> you know, it's very funny because in um, Germany I and even in France, I was never asked about the sexual objects <laughs> and in the Anglo-Saxon world, this seems to be something that, um, I don't know, interests more. So it's very funny. Um, that my book seems to have many sexual objects in there that I, well, actually this I realized uh, because I was asked also a lot about hair and I didn't realize I have so much hair in there, but but this sexual objects are very important. Um, so the glass dildo is from the 16th century and it's a very curious object, I think. It's um, part of the Musée Cluny in Paris and it's um, actually like a little vase in a way. So you could probably also put a flower in there, but it's extremely precise. It also shows, you know, like the pubic hair and stuff. Well, but so this object, um, through this object, I um, wanted to, yeah, to start to tell about um, female sexuality and also how it was perceived because I found it so interesting Um that the way people thought about women and sex and the relationship women have to sex uh, changed so much throughout history, right? Because so in 16th century, so when this object was made in Venice out of a very pretty glass, um, people would think that uh, women are sexual monsters in a way that they would, um, if you would not uh, yeah, protect them from this themselves, they would jump on everything and anything. And so, for example, in convents, they didn't have um, cucumbers or stuff that could be a bit phallic because they thought that um, oh my God. the nuns would not be able to contain their sexual desire that was <laughs> crazy, apparently. And then it's so interesting to see that in the 19th century, this shifted totally and that suddenly women were those creatures that hated sex. They were always fainting to have a migraine or whatever, to not, um, well, proceed to the duties in a way. Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of, through this particular object, actually there's another dildo in there, but through this one, I kind of um, tried to tell the story of how, how, yeah, how this relationship between women and sex and the perception of society of this um, changed and yeah, were going in waves, as you said at the beginning. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And what would you put down to, you were saying, oh, you know, when you've done European interviews, no one asks about it. Do you think it's a cliche that maybe us Brits are a bit more prudish, so we're a bit more obsessed with with asking about these things? I don't know. I'm surprised. It's very funny. I don't, are the British prudish? I didn't know that. <laughs> well, allegedly compared to the Europeans, we... <laughs> no, because, no, also because I really think that um, sexuality, when I was researching the book and when I was trying to, you know, find the themes that I um, considered important and that I wanted to find objects for, sexuality was obviously one of the most important ones because I think it is extremely important um, to life in general, but also to women's lives because this is one um, space or one part of their lives where they were always contained always it was always something that was where they were told to be ashamed of to hide it to yeah to feel guilty about it um and I think that to this it's also very easy I think if you if you put so much shame and guilt on desire it's a very easy way to make people extremely small and shy and unhappy and unable to well to yeah to desire anything not only in a sexual way but in 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 any sense so i really i really find sexuality very important and before i ask you about a very different theme 
were there it sounds like there were there were different ways you found the objects sometimes you had a theme and then you went looking was there any objects that kind of crept in that surprised you and raised a theme so it kind of came the other way uh that was an unexpected pursuit um, yes i think um uh, that raised a theme i don't really know let's say um don't worry if not i just wondered if something surprised you in there well i mean i i would say that they are objects that are related to themes that i found important um as the hat pin that is related to public space and movement and and security of women in the public space um, so the theme was a theme that I found very important because I consider movement as something extremely crucial also, um, or the, the ability to move freely and to wander and to be a flaneuse, as my friend Lauren Elkin would say. Um, and I was very surprised about the story of the hat pin that really, I don't know how it came to me, but it just came to me. It was like the hat pin was knocking on my door in a way, um, and it's a, tell us about that. So yes, what's the story of the hat pin? Yeah, it's 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 very funny. So around 1900, so when the women started to be much more out in the streets and often also alone, which they weren't before, um, or much less. Very. Um, so suddenly there were women in the public space, and for the men that considered in the whole 19th century um, the public space or the public sphere. Um, as their space, um, they seem to think that everything that is in that space is also made for them so that they could touch them or annoy them in any uh, ways. Um, and so women found this uh, very fun and also very smart um, weapon that was the hat pin. So there are many stories that you can find in the newspapers of yeah that time um, where women would sit on the bus and a man would you know, put a hand on their back and then they would take out the hat pin out of their hair and really, yeah, just, just, uh, how do you say that? Um, jab them or fight back, I would say. <laughs> yes. And, and it's, but it's also very interesting to see that. So at the beginning, um, people were very, um, uh, were considering this as something, um, extremely brave. And so, uh, women were kind of this, super women, you know, that didn't need, need Superman anymore. They were fighting back on their own. And then when the suffragettes were talking about security of women in the public space and that we have to do things about that, then suddenly those women with the hat pins became a danger for the streets. And suddenly they were uh, randomly killing guys with the hat pins. And so the hat pin became really like a weapon. So they would have laws for how long your head pin can be. And there were women that actually went to jail in, I think, Australia because they had too long head pins. So I found it very interesting, this shift, but also the fact that in 1900, there was a huge discussion about security of women in, uh, in the streets, in the public uh, space, uh, which I didn't know at all. I thought this discussion is kind of new. And it's very interesting, actually, when you see that, how it's, in a way, it is nice to see how close we can be to the past and to people of the past. Then it's also extremely depressing to see how little changed and how, you know, how similar the discussions are and how helpless we seem to find solutions for this kind of stuff. 
which really hits on the wider theme or, or that comes out about the idea of women's history not being this Whiggish linear line and that we do see these conversations, sexual beings, non-sexual beings, self-defense being important. No, it's not. It's the wrong thing to do. And that kind of changes the whole way we think about history. So it's sort of a fascinating element of the book. Yeah, I'm happy you say that because I was, um, I I often feel that when, because we have now, which is amazing, um, this this willingness to write female history and to, yeah, to kind of show the, the female point of view uh, on history. But I think that often, uh, or let's say sometimes, we tend to write this story as something that is very linear and that is um, only a story of emancipation so that we go from point zero to point, I don't know, 100. Um, so from total submission to emancipation. And I think that this is really totally untrue. And, and also it makes it much more interesting that it is untrue, actually. Um, that we have always had this, um, this backlashes that was written about, about the nineties backlash, but actually those backlashes existed even before, like, uh, the, the witch hunt is kind of a backlash to, uh, semi freedom that some women had in uh, the middle age. Actually, women, of course, of some classes, not everyone. But um, so it's very interesting to see how how this back and forth always, um, yeah, was always there and probably will always in some ways be. Yeah, but it's so important as well, because when we talk, when we see rights like the repeal of abortion laws and things, it's important to remember that this has been ever thus. You know, it's not that we just keep getting it right and that's locked in forever, actually they can be taken away again. Exactly. This is also what is super important to realize that even if we made some some steps forward and if we if some things like abortion, um, at least in the Western world, for I suppose women of my generation seemed like something that is extremely normal, I would say. Um and 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 we didn't even think about the fact that this could be taken away. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's really important to, to understand that, that n nothing is given, that you always have to maybe not fight for it all the time, but at least uh, keep an eye on it. Absolutely. Now there's another area I wanted to ask you about, and that was the thumbscrews and the kind of ideas of torture and, and violence that come out. Tell us a little bit about that and what that uncovered for you. Yes. The, it, the thumbscrew is also a, horrible object actually um so it's um or i used it to um to tell the story of um well how our cultures um are treating rape victims um so i i tell the story of uh, artemisia gentileschi the italian painter of the 17th century and um she was uh, raped by a friend of her father. She was uh, studying painting with him. Uh, and so he raped her and she um, actually had a trial, which I think is one of the first big trial we know about. It was in 1612, I think. Um, and so during those trials back then, but also I think in the centuries after, um, the women that accused the men were actually tortured, as you said. So they had those thumb screws where they put their thumbs in and then they close it. And um, if the woman keeps on saying he raped me, 
then maybe they would believe her. But let's say that the chances that she would at one point say that she lied just because it was unbearable, the pain uh, were very high. Um, and so I found it so, and she talks in this trial, there's a, Roland Barthes, uh, or there, there is a book about this trial where you can read what she said and she, she really is, is screaming to, um, to this man while she's tortured. And, and I found it extremely brave of her uh, in particular to, um, well, to do this, although she was a painter. So this was what she was using to, well, for her work, for her living, for, I suppose, everything she loved. Um, so this was very brave of her. Um, but also I found it extremely interesting to see how in a way also this is something that we could relate to today because I think that at many rape trials, the victim is actually the one that kind of feels accused and that kind of feels tortured and that you would always put in doubt what she's saying. Um, so, so this is again, this thing where you can look at something that happened, uh, in 1612 and relate to it so much like you can really you can feel like you're in the room <clears throat> and and this is not far away but actually what is interesting with Artemisa is that she won so uh, that's crazy because that happens <laughs> not very often even today and with the handling of um of torture and these and these women's stories of the past, what what does it kind of feel like for you? I mean, lots of historians talk about a responsibility uh, to those to those stories. How does that kind of feel when you're getting because something about objects transport you make you often feel even more connected to those individuals? So I wonder what what that felt like for you. Well, for example, in this particular um, story, it was really yeah, it re it felt really painful. Um, also, because if you read the whole the whole trial, uh, what was said, how, um, you know, how besides the torture, the physical one, how, um, the, the person, she, her governess, or I don't know how you would say that, um, was totally lying about, about what she had done, um, how they were saying, well, she's a prostitute, what obviously everyone would believe because if you were a painter, you were probably a prostitute. Um, and so it felt, yeah, it felt extremely, extremely, um, painful, but in a way it's always, I feel, I mean, in this case, it's, it's, um, interesting because on the one hand, there's this, this painful part where you can really feel with her. And then there's also this, uh, empowerment by the fact that she won, um, that she continued painting that she's a painter we know and this guy no one knows who he is no one has even ever seen one of his paintings I suppose she has big shows um in London and he doesn't um so yeah it, it was very often both that that you would feel extremely sad and really touched by it but then also would be so amazed by how how powerful and how strong and how brave women have always been. And this is also something that I, I really love to discover also my, myself, right? Um, that women have always been very cool, very cool people. <laughs> I love that. And then jumping to uh, a final example about 400 years later, 
Kim Kardashian's ring takes a take a place in the book. Tell me a bit about that and what you you know did you were you were a fan of Kim Kardashian? Why did you decide to include it and what was the story you told? Um, yes, no, I'm I'm not. I don't, I'm not, I'm not at all a fan of Kim Kardashian. I think I just very recently actually watched some of the, uh, of the shows. Um, so I'm very late to this actually, but I, no, I thought about it a lot. I was wondering, should I put her in or not? Because I'm, I'm not a big user of social media. I never post a um, selfie or if I do, if to me, this is something like super, crazy what I do and so um, this is not something I can relate to probably because I'm too old or something but um, then I felt that and also you would there were some people that were telling me why did you put Kim Kardashian in that is so you know <laughs> like, like this is something that is really beneath us or whatever and yeah. I felt this is extremely stupid in a way right because it is part of <laughs> the reality of many women today and who am I to find that good or bad? Um, because this book is not about what I like. It is a lot about what I like too, but it's also <laughs> a lot about reality. And so I, I, yeah, I decided to include her, but I found this way that I found kind of interesting to include her because, so I do it, um, through the ring that she, she was robbed in, um, in Paris during fashion week. And I found this very interesting, um, parallel between on the same day um, in the morning Elena Ferrante the writer was kind of uncovered um, and in the evening Kim Kardashian would, was robbed and I found it so interesting how the reactions were yeah in in a way also telling so much about how we perceive uh, women and um, powerful women and successful women because for Elena Ferrante who sold I don't know millions of copies of her of her Naples stories um, it was said that someone who is so successful cannot decide to hide because she was writing on the under the name of Elena Ferrante, but no one knows really who she is. It was a pseudonym. We should explain for listeners who aren't familiar with the tale. She, it was a pseudonym she wrote under. No one knew who she really was. And a male writer exposed her true identity uh, and caused a lot of controversy about one's right to privacy, but also who gets to write those stories because of she wasn't from Naples. Is that right? And they, there was a sort of controversy around that too, I think. No, but I found it so interesting that for her, the thing that was said was you are not allowed to stay anonymous because you are so successful. And for Kim Kardashian on the same day, they said, well, if you expose yourself so much, what do you expect? Of course you get robbed if you're such an mm. exhibitionist. And so it's very interesting to see how women in a way seem to not be allowed to decide, um, well, how they want to present themselves, if they want to present themselves, if they want to show a lot or if they don't want to show nothing. Um, yeah, and so they get, in a way, um, punished for trying to have control over their own images. Uh, and and I found that very interesting, also very sad, actually, as a, to see that, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's another classic, uh, women can't win either way. Either you completely say, I want to be private and just, just take my work, or you're so public and you can't, you know, it's that constant dichotomy women are, are forced to make, whether that be your sexuality or your 
public image, it's it's always an impossible choice of archetypes. And for this, in a way, Kim Kardashian is still very interesting because she, um, I mean, she, in a way, through what she does, she kills the whole paparazzi uh, idea of someone, you know, trying to peek in your into your bathroom and making pictures of your kids if you don't want to. She shows everything, so no one can even try to find anything in a way. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's a matter of control. I'm not a fan of this, but still, it's a matter of control, I suppose. And of power also. It's a kind of a strange question, but I was struck by the idea that we live in an ultra-materialistic world that's obsessed with accumulation of stuff. And at the same time, there's these moves to spark joy through minimalism, the Marie Kondo trend. And I just wondered through the course of this, has it changed how you perceive stuff and accumulation and objects and how has that kind of affected you personally ah that's interesting that's a good question actually uh <laughs> well i'm i'm wondering if i'm a big accumulator i mean i'm i'm only just i have thousands of books probably so this is a <laughs> real problem actually but i'm i'm not a big collector so i'm not someone who has a lot of objects and and things um besides clothes maybe also But, uh, so it didn't, it didn't change my relationship to this in the way, um, I think you ask it. Um, it totally changed my relationship to objects because now I'm, I really, in a way I can see a story in, in everything I see, which is, um, sometimes probably a bit idiotic, but also very, very fun and very interesting because it's really like, they're like mini openings everywhere right to to whole other worlds so um so this changed a lot but then to 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 objects or to to possession in in general um i would say uh, no and what is your hope in terms of how we look at history as i say in itself it's making a comment about how we think about history are there things from your own education of talking to other women that you wish were taught differently about women um, and, and yeah, what would you like to see if it was a call to action embedded in there? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I really would like, um, this because it is, um, as it's written, uh, a history of women, right? So I would really love if this could in a way inspire, um, other women to, you know, tell their particular stories because I really feel like, more we tell and more we tell also from very personal points of view, um, more we also more we get relaxed probably on many things, you know, more we, we, maybe we, we don't take things in such a dramatic way. And so I'm much more able to actually act. Mm. Um, so I suppose, um, this and, um, well, I think we live in a kind of a, very good age to be a woman today, at least in our, um, sides of the world. So, so, so I, I think we are, we are very lucky about what we, what we kind of know today, what we, what we discover, uh, what we can say and, you know, what we can produce, um, as, as knowledge, um, or even just as, as questions. So I think what I think is important is not to to say, or, you know, to find some truths, but to kind of question even more the past and through this, actually the present and the future. 
So um, yeah, maybe something like that. Love that. That's really beautifully put. And finally, I'd, I'd be uh, wrong not to ask about this audiobook because it is star-studded that's coming up and it seems like there's been lots of engagement from from interesting people. Tell us the story of the audiobook and and what that will Will each of them voice a different chapter? What's happening with that? Yes, so this audiobook is a, is a crazy thing. It's um it's really marvelous because uh, so my my British editor uh, from Canon Gate uh, had this yeah really brilliant idea I think because it totally um, reflects what the book wanted to do. I never thought about this, but um, I really tried to have something that is let's say multi-voiced and that shows a lot of aspects and a lot of tones and, you know, uh, that would be diverse. And so through those 101 women that are reading, so the 101 objects, I'm one of them. I read very badly probably, but, um, (laughs) so it's, it, yeah, it gives the voice uh, to those objects and also to those stories. And so to those women. And, uh, so we have, Margaret Atwood that is reading um, the Malleus Maleficarum, uh, so about the witch hunts and just the way she says witch is amazing, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm extremely happy and extremely honored. And I really, to me, it feels like if you see all those women, I don't know how many I can tell you are reading. So Olivia Coleman is reading one. Gillian uh, Anderson is reading actually the healed femur. Um, and to me, it really seems like, you know, like a, a sorority or something like really like yeah. women of the past and women from today are kind of holding hands and telling each other the stories and, and giving voices. And it's, um, no, it's, it's incredible. I'm super happy about it. And I, I think it will be cool. I think it will sound good. I can't wait to hear it. And that will be the next iteration of this amazing story. Thank you so much, Annabelle. It's been really amazing to speak with you. Thank you. That was Annabelle Hirsch, author of A History of Women in 101 Objects. It's available now from Canongate Books and any good bookstore near you. I've been Poppy Damon. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Hall. If you'd like to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, do sign up for our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com.